Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you're visiting with us for the first time, maybe checking out a new church at the beginning of a new year, our custom is to just work through books of the Bible, and shortly before Christmas, we started a series through James, and we left off on verse 26, so we're going to look at the last couple verses of James chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the, the rack in front of you in the chair. You can keep that Bible. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you, and we'll have the scriptures on the screen, but I think it's really really uh, helpful to have your own copy of God's Word on your lap. So take that Bible if you don't have one. We're going to read the Scripture in just a moment and many others and work our way through these, these short verses as we begin this new year. As you're finding James 1, let me mention to you a couple things, uh, just a couple administrative notes. Uh, first, um, if you don't know, if you haven't been around Crosspoint for a while, this church is led by a plurality of elders. We think that the New Testament calls for men in the church to lead this church. And we have a group of elders that lead this church. They're, these elders are a, a, a combination of men who are employed by the church as pastors on staff as elders like myself and, and Robert and Tyler and Springer. And then also lay elders, men that aren't necessarily employed in vocational ministry but have other jobs but also kind of pull double duty by being an elder of the church and also having a job. And so men that are lay elders of the church so that we don't burn them out, um, we have instituted kind of a regular sabbatical where a man will serve a three-year term and uh, then he can take a year sabbatical. And so I want to let you know that this upcoming year, at the end of last year actually, Ruben Moyana, one of our lay elders, is taking a sabbatical year. So he rotated off of the eldership and he's going to take a year sabbatical. And towards the end of the year, I'm going to be chomping at the bit to get him back, Lord willing, on the eldership. Ruben is a dentist in uh, this place called Alabama, and the, he is starting a new practice these last few years, very busy, and so we want to preserve Reuben, and we don't want his wife, Edith, to hate us, and so he's taking a sabbatical year, there he is, and, and Edith, and so Lord willing, he'll come back on, but we're so grateful for all of our elders, thankful for Reuben's um, leadership in the church, and um, praying that this year of kind of rest from the rigors of, of eldership will be a renewal for him. And, uh, and just thankful for the, the way the Lord has used his gifts and his leadership to help lead us as a church. So praise God for this brother, and um, let's pray for him this upcoming year in his dental practice. Then secondly, also, hopefully in your bulletin you got a little insert, uh, 10 questions to, to just ask yourself at the beginning of a new year. I just included that as a resource for you. Here's 10 questions that maybe you and your family might go through together in the coming days, or just you personally. And then there's some follow-on questions, another 21 questions, I guess, for a total of 31 questions to just sort of reorient yourself spiritually. This would be, a, I think, a, just a helpful resource. Um, this isn't a, a law or we're not trying to condemn anybody, but this is just a way for you to think deeply and intentionally about the new year and about your life 
with the Lord. And then also we have some Bible reading plans that we have out on the information desk. If you're the type of person that needs that discipline, uh, I've included out on the just about 100 copies of the Bible reading plan that I'll be using this year. It's a five day a week Bible reading plan. And you're saying, Brad, we're already behind. It's January 5th. Here's the good news. This Bible reading plan is actually a 52-week Bible reading plan, and it starts this week. So you're not behind. So you can grab it, and it's just Monday through Friday. It gives you some catch-up days, and it's chronological. There's a New Testament and Old Testament reading each day, and, and it's, it, I think it's just real helpful. So this is one I'm going to be doing this year. So if, that, if you're so inclined that would be helpful to you. You can grab one on the, on the information desk. All right, administrative part done. Let's get into the text. Let me read chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 of our passage. And again, if you're visiting with us, I realize that we're, you're kind of coming in in the middle of, or at the end of this chapter, in the middle of this series. Uh, you're not going to be behind. You'll catch up quickly, uh, Lord willing. The burden is on me to hopefully explain to you where we are in this text, and, and I, I pray that very quickly you, you'll orient yourself and that this will be helpful for you today. So let me read James 1, verse 26 and 27. James writes, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this truth, for James, for this letter, for the new year, for all the good things that you've given us. Earlier in this chapter, it says that you, that every good gift comes down from you with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. And you've given us your son, you've given us your word, you've given us each other. What a privilege to be alive in this time, in this day. The nations rage, but you are in complete control. Sanctify us, Lord, now by your word. Lord, let this first Sunday of 2020, let it be a time when we recalibrate and th- we, we settle our hearts on the firm foundation of the good news of the gospel in your word and do beautiful things this morning as we stare at your word. Show us beautiful things. Encourage your people. And I pray for any friends that are in this room that came in not knowing you, that you, by your sovereign good grace, by your rich mercy, would cause somebody to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Lord, do all these things, I pray, so that you would be glorified and that we would enjoy you forever. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little reorienting of our, of our situation, our context in James. He's been talking about the Word and the ministry of the Word in the life of a believer in the church. And he started off the first half of James telling us that we will, to be a Christian means that you will face trials, not when, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds, that we can count it as a joy. And he encourages us that we're going to face them and that they have a purpose and that God is behind it all. And then he transitions in the second half of the chapter into a really an exposition, an explanation, 
one of the more extended portions in all of the Bible about the Bible, the word itself, and what the word of God does. And he tells us about verse 18 that we are brought forth, that that a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus is brought forth by the word of God. And we're to be a kind of first fruits that our lives, that this word of God, the ministry of God's word in our life is first that it brings us forth. That means that we are, we are born again, the, minute, the message of the word of God, the good news of the gospel, all that this Bible contains is the means by which God causes our dead hearts to be made alive. That's what it means to be born again. And this gets to the, to the very heart of the gospel, because if we understand that we need to be born again by the word, to be brought forth by the word, that means that we, coming to the word, in our natural state, are dead in our sins. That's why the Bible's very clear about that. And the good news of the Bible is that when God brings a person forth, when he saves a person, he doesn't save them because of any good works that reside or exist in them. Dead people don't have anything in them spiritually to commend them to God. That's why the Bible is full of this message of grace. We've heard that term a lot. And if that's new to you, what grace means is that God doesn't save a person because of their works or because of the righteousness that they bring, but because of his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what it means to be brought forth by the word. And specifically, how does he do that? Well, he sends his son Jesus. You've heard it alluded to already in this service, in our song, in our scripture reading, and even in our prayers, that God the Father sends God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no beginning, no end, triune God, three in one, this beautiful mystery. God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus, to become a man, and he becomes a person like us, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, and then Jesus... God the Son lays down his perfect life on the cross, willingly, voluntarily, to be a sacrifice, not merely as an example, but to be a sacrifice to absorb the wrath and punishment for our sin, for all those that would ever trust in him. And so how does God make us alive? How does he save us? How does he bring us forth by the word, by this news? Well, our hearts are dead because of sin. And when God determines to save somebody, he awakens them. He regenerates them is the, is the theological term. He rebirths them spiritually. He takes their dead heart out. He gives them a new heart. And now this new heart no longer trusts in itself or its own righteousness, which is our natural inclination, but now it's enabled to see that the way we are made right with God is to trust in what God the Son did to remove the wrath of God the Father so that we can be reconciled to God. That's how this word brings us forth. We're born by this word. And now this word, this is the the first explanation of what the word does in James 1. Now at the second half of the chapter of James 1, James is concerned with explaining to us what this word that has brought us forth or caused us to be made alive, now what impact it should have on us. 
we now, as we've been brought forth by this word, we've been born again by this word, that's God's grace, the gospel, now we are enabled to obey the word, to do the word. That's the second half of James. We looked at it a couple weeks ago before Christmas, that we, 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 we now are enabled, in fact, commanded and exhorted to not just be merely hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. We shouldn't be like the person that he explains in, in a few verses prior that we, who looks in a mirror and who sees his faults and just walks off un, not correcting their faults, but we should look into God's law that's made us alive, and now, where previously we were unable to obey it because we were dead spiritually. Now we are able to obey it progressively. That's called sanctification because God has made us alive. That's the good news. That's the other half of the good news of the gospel. And now in our text, in verses 26 and 27, he's whittling down. He's zeroing in on three particular categories, if you will, three particular categories of obedience to God's word. Three exhortations, three categories of what it looks like in the life of a Christian to obey God's word. And these categories are our tongue, our mercy, and our sanctification. So we're going to look at one each after the other. The first is our tongue. He tells us that we should control our tongue. We should control our tongue. Look again at verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious, and don't be tripped up by that word. I know we don't use the word religious much, but it's just a, another way of saying spiritual. If, if anyone thinks that he's spiritual or spiritually minded and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion or spirituality or relationship with God is worthless. Now He's, he's pushing it all in. He's, 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 he's going all in on verse 26 in regards to the seriousness of our tongue. What is this first saying? What I think James is saying is that to be a Christian means that we have a new heart. And now, because we have a new heart, our tongues will in large part reveal the genuineness or the newness of our heart or the, or the lack of newness of our heart. Remember James, I think the whole letter of James, James's main point throughout this whole letter is he is concerned with faith being alive. He's, he's not saying that we're saved by our works, but he is saying that true saving faith, somebody who's really trusting in Jesus, their life will produce out of that true faith, out of that genuine faith, will be some measure of obedience. And so James's point all throughout his five chapters is he is trying to show his readers that if you claim to be a Christian, there must be some evidence in your life of the authenticity of your salvation. In other words, our lives validate the, the, the genuineness of our confession. Again, we're not saved by our works, but our works kind of validate whether or not we're, we're, we're truly trusting in Jesus. And so what James is saying here is that if, you're, if your tongue is out of control, you're self-deceiving yourself. It tells the world about the genuineness of your faith. Jesus says much the same thing in the Gospels on several occasions. In Matthew and Luke, he says that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Later on in Matthew, he says that it's not so much what goes into, and this was a debate that he was having with religious Pharisees about what a person could or couldn't eat in adherence to the Old Testament law. 
And he's saying, look, I think you're misunderstanding the heart here. It's not the heart of the law. It's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them. It's what comes out of their mouth that defiles them. And so James is saying that you have a new heart. Of course, we're going to say things that we shouldn't say. That's part of still being human. But he's saying that we can take action. We should make our tongues obey our new heart. And he uses this word bridle. It's a, it, a bridle is, 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 is it's, it's the, those leather straps that you connect to a bit that you put in a horse's mouth. And the bridle is, is what you steer a horse with. And if you don't steer your tongue in accordance with your new faith in Jesus, you, you are running the risk of being deceived and your whole, your whole confession may be worthless. If we don't do this, we deceive ourselves. He's saying that no matter how much doctrine we know, no matter how much Bible we know, if we can't make our tongues obey our new hearts, we are self-deceived. And we're very, very vulnerable to this self-deception, I think, in our age, because we live in an age where there are more words than ever before. We have more opportunities to talk, especially publicly, than ever before, don't we? Now, in one sense, this is a gift. We can exchange ideas on the internet, social media. We can share and send biblical truth all over the world, and that's a great blessing. But on the other hand, there's a kind of other dark edge of that two-edged sword. On the other hand, it's a kind of age of platform where many people think that it's their birthright to express their opinions on just about everything publicly. We have more words than we've ever had before, and this has an effect on us spiritually, I think. It, It can, if we're not careful, produce in us the blind arrogance of self appointed wisdom, where we just think that we're experts because we have a Facebook account. And friends, this can, be very, this, can, this can cause deception. The more we talk, the less we hear, and the less we hear, the less we learn. We lose self-awareness when we get into a mode of commenting on everything and always talking. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have opinions. I'm not saying that we should walk around scared of, of formulating a thought. We have the mind of Christ. We can look at the world and discern it. And we should have convictions and opinions. I'm saying that the more we get used to sharing them all the time about all the things, the dumber we get. The more we talk, the less we listen. And the less we listen, the less we know. And before we know it, We are prone over time to move very slowly into becoming self-deceived, arrogant fools. That's the power of the tongue. Now, here's the thing about the tongue. This is a constant theme in James. It not only comes up here, but when we get to chapter 3, he's going to take about 12 verses, and he's going to go in hard. And he's going to really put his finger on our tongue. So there's, this is convicting. There's, there's more to it. So we're going to, we're going to we'll, we'll, this might hurt a little bit. We'll scab up a little bit. And then we'll rip that scab off in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 3. But why is this so important? Why are our tongues so important? Friends, understand what's going on here. This isn't just, oh, you shouldn't have a loud mouth. Or you shouldn't just pop off. You shouldn't say stupid things. Because this is just kind of some little list of spiritual things that you need to do. Why is this so important? I think it's important because, because think about what the whole Bible, just the whole 
way, the whole delivery of the Bible, and God, the way he works, God is a speaking God. He's a talking God. He acts by speaking. He formed everything that is by his word, by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1 says. His word comes down from heaven, and it accomplishes all that he purposes in Isaiah 55. God doesn't waste one word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. But Hebrews tells us that his word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's how God works, by his word. And we are his image bearers. That's what it means to be a child of God, to bear the image of God. So we, as we image God, are to speak words of grace and truth and wisdom to the world. And when we don't, when we waste our words, when we don't control our tongues, we do more than just waste our words. We obscure the very purpose for which God has reconciled us. To be his mouthpiece, to be, to be his speakers to a lost world. That's why it's so serious. So how do we, how do we live this out? Just a few thoughts about this before we move on to the next exhortation about caring for the vulnerable. How do we live this out? Let me, let me just consider three ways in particular that as we approach this new year that we think about controlling our tongue. The first, the first area I would, I would exhort myself and all of us to think about is social media. I alluded to it earlier about how we all just kind of have an age of platform and it just sort of produces in us a kind of arrogance in our opinions. Think before you post. Does the world really need my opinion on this subject? Probably something that I know very, very little about. Will fellow Christians, maybe from other contexts or cultures or settings, be discouraged by what I say online or what I share? And will this Will this post, will this statement, will this flippant little sharing of some stupid meme, will it potentially confuse people about where my true hope lies? And friends, we are approaching an election year. And one of my concerns about my own heart and about the heart of our church is that sometimes it seems like Christians in our little stream get really, really passionate about politics and very, very ho-hum about eternal truths. And by the way we comport ourselves online, I think we can unwittingly confuse people that we care more about a presidential election. And I'm not saying it's unimportant. It's a good stewardship, and it's, it's part of being a good citizen to care about those things and to vote, and some of us may be actually even called into politics to campaign or even to run for offices. All those are good things. But friends, we are not ultimately citizens of this world, and it is a mark of Christian maturity to care about those things, but not to unwittingly put your hope in them. There's coming a day when the presidency of the United States, when Washington, D.C., when the halls of power in every major city in this world will pass away. 
We, we are citizens of a new kingdom, the kingdom that is coming. Jesus is our king. And we want to we be careful not to unwittingly communicate any other hope. So social media is one, one area that we need to watch our tongues. The, the other area that I, I would encourage myself and us to watch our tongues in is, is, is just this is, is humor and sarcasm. Consider your use of humor and sarcasm. I think, I think there's just cultural forces. I think it's a kind of uh, insecurity that grips our culture. I think we've been influenced by mass media and by sitcoms and just sort of the frivolity of this entertainment culture that has discipled us. I think, I think we are prone to rely too much on humor and sarcasm. And, and I think that that undercuts the fruitfulness and the effectiveness of the tongue of a Christian that should be a blessing. Too much of it, too much joking around, snarky sarcasm, it severely weakens our ability to be helpful when it really, really matters. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Uh, but let, let's, be, let's be fun people, but let's be serious people. And then finally, if I haven't stepped on your toes enough, let me just step on them a little bit more. A third area, when it, speaking about our tongues, about six months ago, I did a little personal experiment, and I really in, intentionally thought about how often I interrupt people when they're speaking, and it was, it was stunning. We're not talking like 10 or 15 times. We're talking like dozens of times a day. Maybe controlling our tongue is just asking a, a friend, a family member, a spouse to help you realize how much you interrupt other people in conversation. At the heart of interrupting is, is just, it's really pride, it's arrogance. You don't know, what, let, me, let me finish this sentence for you, you poor schlep, because you don't really know what you're talking about. And it's, it's just a default mode that we get into. Let's just Part of, part of obeying the word, part of having this new heart is that we think we're, we're thoughtful about how we use our tongues. Friends, there's so much power in this little muscle in our mouth and the heart that controls it. All right, we're gonna take a break from the tongue for a while, but I'm warning you, we're coming back in chapter three, okay? Second exhortation. He says, care for the vulnerable. Look at verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Well, what's going on here? What's, why does he zero in on orphans? Why does, he, why does he classify true, pure religion as visiting orphans and widows in their affliction? We need to understand just the Bible background of James's impulse here to mention these two classes of people, orphans and widows. Mercy ministry, or the ministry of caring for vulnerable people, is a major theme throughout the whole Bible, in particular in the Old Testament. And we need to understand the vulnerability of the plight of the widow and the orphan, and why they are so important to the heart of God, especially as we look at the narrative of God's people in the Old Testament. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 10. This, we're right smack dab in, in Moses giving the law to the people of God a second time. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law, a reminder of God's holiness and the way he wants his people to live. And listen to what God's heart is 
for vulnerable people, in particular, widows and orphans and sojourners. Chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, starting in verse 12, he says, And now, Israel, this is Moses speaking, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So what he's saying, he's really hearkening back to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He's saying, Israel, I made you my people not because of anything good in you, but simply because of my love. I love you because I loved you. And that Old Testament reality of how and why God chose Israel is a spiritual picture of why and how God loves any of his people, even in the New Testament and the New Covenant. I love you because I love you is what he told Israel, and that's what he says to us. I love you because I love you. You're my people. I made you my people. You were dead, and I made you alive. Now, verse 16 because the word has brought you forth, because God loved you, because the gospel of grace hit your heart and made you alive, now do the word, essentially is what he's saying. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You're alive. God chose you. He made you his own. Now cut away the, the old part of your life. Cut away the part of your heart that is old and dead and now follow me is what he's saying. Listen to verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now listen to verse 18 and 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So do you see the connection there? God is saying, you were a sojourner. You were a foreigner traveling, wandering through the desert. You were widowed by your sin. You were orphaned. You, you had nothing in you that made me want you. But I loved you because I loved you. You've received mercy. Now, Israel, now, people of God, give mercy. That's what it means to be a believer, to be a person of God. You've received mercy. Now, give mercy. That's the whole point of why he redeemed Israel. And that's the whole point of why he also gives us mercy. We read in Genesis chapter 12 about how he calls, he starts the nation of Israel. And he says to Abraham this beautiful promise, which really sets up the gospel and the rest of the Bible. He says to Abraham, I'm going to call you. I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. That's the pattern that God cared for us when we were vulnerable. Therefore, now it's our, it's our privilege, it's our duty, it's what it means to be a Christian to care for the vulnerable as God has cared for us. And we see this repeated in the New Testament. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this about believers. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Not so that this was its grace would dead end on you and you would just be a mere sermon hearer and church attender. That's not in the Bible. I'm, I'm, I'm parenthesizing that. But, but that 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And why have you received this mercy? He says to us in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That verse tells us that every Christian is a missionary while he leaves them on this earth. We're praying for Miranda to go to Belgium. We've got people in this church that are going on short-term mission trips this year. We've got people in this church that are long-term missionaries. We support others from other churches that are long-term missionaries. But, but we would do well to get out of this mindset that you have to go and do something specific in a foreign land to be a missionary. We are all, according to 1 Peter 2, missionaries. That's why we received mercy, not so that it would just sort of dead end on us, but that it would flow through us. That's what's going on here in verse 27. This is a picture. He's not just zeroing in on orphans and widows as if those are the only two classes of people that we need to be concerned about. He's giving us an example, and he's saying that God's heart is for the vulnerable, so if you're truly trusting in Christ, this is what's going to flow out of you, a heart of mercy, because you've received mercy. And what, is this, what does this look like for us? The widow and the orphan are, are, are representative of the vulnerable, as important as they are. As important as they are, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. We miss the heart of this passage if we simply check the box and say, oh, well, we've got a widow ministry and we've got an orphan and adoption ministry at the church and that we occasionally promote it and I've given a little money to it and I kind of help. And, you know, we miss the heart of what's going on here as if this is just some sort of program to check or implement. This is representative of vulnerable people, in particular widows and orphans. Who, who, who need care because, not because we're in some lofty position of strength because we're middle or upper middle class Americans that have means, but because we too, we don't understand the gospel unless we realize that we were orphans, we were sojourners, we were estranged from God in our sin. And he loved us when we were far from him. He loved us when we were defenseless. He loved us when we had nothing to give him. He loved us because he loved us. That's the beautiful truth of adoption. The spiritual truth of adoption. God makes you his child because of his good pleasure. And because he's done that to us, then we practically think about people that we can image this love with as we care for the world around us. So, so how, do we, how do we do this? Well, again, I referred to this. I think we need to get out of a kind of box-checking mode. More than a ministry or a program to start, and those are good things to do, by the way, but more than that, this is a posture for every Christian. This isn't just a program of the church. This is a posture. It's an attitude. It's something that we wrestle with and work into our lives by prayer and by humility, by taking in God's word. Listen, listen to Philippians chapter two, Paul's reasoning here to the Philippian church. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That means the person from the other side of the tracks, the person who's got all sorts of social uh, quirks that drive you nuts, the person that's very difficult to deal with, 
that what it means to be a Christian is in humility, you count them more significant than yourself. You, you, you have cultivated the beautiful fruit in your life of self-forgetfulness and others-focused. And then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by became, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is rooting our other focus on how Christ focused on us and divested himself of, of even his equality with God. Even though he never stopped being God, he divested himself of his privileges and rights as the second person of the Trinity. He emptied himself, he says in verse 7, and took on the form of a servant. And because Jesus has done this, we image the gospel when we have our heads on a swivel and we care for other people. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. This is how God showed mercy on us. Romans 5 or 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, dead in our sin, Christ died for us. As image bearers, we bear the image of God no more than when we care for the vulnerable. That's what it means to be a Christian, to care for the vulnerable. So how do we live that practically? How do we live this out before we look at this third point? Well, certainly, we, we do want to care for widows and orphans, and we do that, I think, well at Crosspoint. We've got a team of men who have a ministry that helps to minister to not just widows, we don't have many of them in the church, but certainly we do have some, but also just women in, in need for various reasons. Maybe their husbands are deployed, or maybe, maybe they need something that, uh, they need some, something done around their house, or some sort of care, and we think about ways that we can help, and so maybe you might have some skill that you could help some other member of Crosspoint that, that is needed, or maybe you are a widow or a woman in need. We, we want to care for you in some way. Let us know about that. We have an orphan care team that helps to facilitate fostering and adopting of orphans. There are at least a dozen, I'm sure more, families in our church that have adopted both nationally and internationally and are fostering children. Unfortunately, in our culture, it can cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to adopt a child. And so we have a group of people that come alongside. We help people do that financially. We have people that foster. There's all sorts of ways that you can maybe be part of that. Maybe you're not called to foster or adopt or care for orphans physically in that way, but maybe you're called to come alongside and offer encouragement and respite to a family that is doing those things. Those are practical ways that we can specifically care for orphans. But let's not stop there. Again, let's not just let this be a program of the church. James, James zeroes in on these two to be a kind of picture of the vulnerable. And, and we, as, a, as, a, as believers in Jesus, as a, as a church striving to live out th this type of gospel imperative, we need to be people that care about the vulnerable as well. All types of people, not just orphans and widows. 
And there are so many beautiful examples of this in the life of this church. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about it, and many of your faces and your situations were running through my mind, and I was praising God for the many people in this church who just have an instinct to care for vulnerable people, whether they're widows or orphans or in other some sort of vulnerable situation. And here's a few things before we move on that I've noticed about, about people in this church who do care for others who are vulnerable in various ways, who do care for them. Here's a few things I've noticed about those people. They rarely, in fact, they don't have to be asked. They're not waiting on our churchwide ministry to be organized. They realize that it's always messy and hard. They're not the type of people that dip in to make themselves feel good and then hit the eject button when it gets hard. They, they, they're just they're people of endurance. They're people of quiet endurance. Dealing with vulnerable people in whatever sphere of life, whether it's an orphan or whether it's just somebody in all sorts of spiritual mess, it is always messy and hard. And here's one final thing I've noticed about people who do this sort of consistently, quietly here at Crosspoint. None of them really are experts. None of them are experts or trained counselors or people really of any particular substantial resources. They're just believers who have taken the word seriously and their life, whether they realize it or not, their life is just always kind of governed by others and the needs of those around them. And they just sort of go about doing other things. They just sort of live in a Philippians 2 sort of posture. They look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. May that tribe in this tribe increase. Praise God for people in our church that do that. Okay, last, last exhortation in this short little text. Man, there's a lot in just a couple verses, isn't there? Avoid worldliness is what, what James tells us. Verse 27. So after he tells us to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, he says to keep oneself unstained from the world. Keep oneself unstained from the world. That's, that's quite an exhortation. In order to understand this command, this exhortation by James, we need to make sure that we understand how the gospel works. The good news of the gospel is not you must do this, and if you do this, then this is what God will do for you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is it's done now do. That's the good news. It's not make yourself right, be accepted by your works, and now God will meet you halfway. The good news of the gospel is it's done. He has washed you. He has made you new. He's made you alive. Now, because of what he has done, be who you were made to be. Be who God has already made you. Be who you are in Christ. Listen, we see this order all throughout the Bible. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. There's this beautiful, have you, are you guys familiar with Ephesians 2? If you've been here for more than a couple weeks, I'm sure you are. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 is one of the most beautiful explanations of the gospel in the whole Bible. It would be a good paragraph to memorize. In fact, we have it on a little sign out in the foyer next to that little building, that picture of that building by the couches right there in the foyer. And you know what that building by those couches is? That was where Crosspoint met for the first five years of our life, the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse up in Harris County. And right next to it is this verse on the, on, 
on, this, on the, the picture, Ephesians 2. But what's happening in Ephesians 2 is it's saying that we're dead in our sins, but how do dead people become God's people? Verse 4 says that God makes us alive. He makes us alive. That's the good news of the gospel. And then look at chapter 4. This is now what the new life does. It's been done for you. You didn't do anything. It's been done for you. You were dead. God made you alive. He gave you a new heart. And now this is what you must do. You now can do. Look at verse 17 of Ephesians 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God into righteousness and holiness. So I, I read that text because I want you to see this beautiful biblical tension of the Christian life. The good news of the gospel is that it has been done for you. You've been made new. You've been forgiven. You can be no more loved by God at the moment of your salvation than a thousand years after. You can't make yourself more lovable, more justified. But the, but the admonition of the Bible is that we are to become who we already are. Take off the old man. Put on the new. It's already happened in Christ, but you have to actually do it in time. So we, we, we can keep ourselves unstained from the world because God has empowered us to do this. Practically, finally, how do we do this? How do we live this out? How do we avoid worldliness? Well, this, this could be a whole series of sermons. But just briefly, what tools has God given us? Three thoughts about what tools God has given us, and they are not revolutionary. They're, I think, just clear, simple Bible. The first is that you... We need to remember to preach the gospel to ourselves. I hope you've noticed that every time we gather, we weave and we connect whatever we're talking about in the Bible, we connect it to the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Because I think Christians need the gospel. The gospel is not merely a set of truths that you need to believe to secure your eternal salvation. And then you get into the really practical stuff. There's nothing more practical than being reminded of the fact that you in your own righteousness are nothing, but you need Christ, not only for your initial salvation, but for your daily sanctification. Christians need to be reminded of this. And let me just say this. I, I realize I may not be the greatest preacher in the world. I, I get that. But if you tire of hearing the gospel week after week, that may be an indication that there's something very off with your soul. That, that may be an indication that the gospel hasn't really awakened you and humbled you and made you realize how needy you were and how much of, a, of an orphan you really were spiritually. And that when you see the greatness of mercy, when you see it, you never get over it. And you preach it to yourself over and over and over again because even though we're new creatures in Christ, even though we're born again, even though we have new hearts, even though we have the mind of Christ, we all suffer from this dreaded disease until we get to heaven and it's called gospel amnesia. 
We forget. And one of the great disciplines that separates mature Christians from immature Christians is mature Christians have learned the discipline of preaching the gospel, knowing it, rehearsing it, knowing it inside out so they can preach it to their own hearts daily. Know the gospel, hear the gospel, revel in the gospel, glory in the gospel, be amazed at the gospel, and preach it to your own heart and fight sin with the good news of the gospel. Another means, and this kind of follows from that, is just consume the word. We have, look, we have, we have, a, this is a wonderful time to, to, to make new postures and new habits. Consume the word of God. If you're not a Bible reading plan type of person, that's fine. Pick up God's word and read it. Fight for it. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Pick it up, man. Pick it up and read it. Read it in the morning. Read it. Find a time. We find time to do things that are important to us. And the fruit of a new heart, one of the new desires that is an indicator of true faith is that our heart is going to be drawn to the manna, to the soul-satisfying word of God. Fight for it. How do you keep yourself unstained? You fight for keeping your nose in this book. David says in Psalm 119 that your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The regular, unspectacular discipline of taking in God's word. It's not a magic pill, but it will help you. It will help you keep unstained from this world. And then finally, Bind yourself to the people of God. Bind yourself to the church. Bind yourself to either this local church or some other local church where you can be accountable and known and you can fasten yourself to the people of God. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I think implied, clearly implied in that text is a kind of commitment, a formal, real, tangible commitment to a group of Christians in a local church that know you and you know them. That doesn't mean in a church like Cross Point that's a little bit larger that you're going to necessarily know every other person. But I think it means that you are saying, this is my place. One practical way of making that kind of formal and public, as Robert talked about it earlier, our church membership class where we... Describe what it means to be part of the body of Cross Point, where you become known by us, and we know you know we know you, you know us, and we have a kind of relationship. Where we're committed to one another. I think I think that is a a clear, implicit truth that separates people and puts them into a category of striving to Christian maturity. And I commend that to you, not as legalism, but as as a spiritual, just a spiritual posture that is biblical. Friends, no, notice that none of these are spectacular, none of these things are shortcuts, and none of these things are easy. Basically, I told you, know the gospel, saturate yourself with the word, and hang, be part of the church. You're like, oh, well, I, I, that's not spectacular. Exactly. We live in a world that's addicted to the new and the novel, and they never work. They never work. Shiny little things wear off. They wear off. But these timeless principles of the Christian life are good for our souls. The Christian life is a long obedience, as one pastor put, a long obedience in the same direction. People that control their tongue. 
People that care for others more than they care for themselves. And people that fight, fight against worldliness to keep on staying from this world together. Well, here's the good news for those of us who always fail at all three of these things weekly, which I'm assuming is all of us. The good news is that the gospel doesn't just save us once. It continually saves us. Robert read 1 Corinthians 15. It says it's this gospel in which you stand, in which you are being saved. We come again afresh to the gospel, finding help in our time of need. We come again to Jesus, receiving mercy, not just one time for salvation, but daily, every second of every day for our sanctification, for our strength, for our sustenance. We come again, those of us who have let our tongues run amok, those of us who have said harmful things, those of us who have posted stupid things on Facebook, even this morning, those of us who have have been selfish and not cared for the vulnerable, those of us who are stained with the world, we come, we come, not just having been saved 10 years ago, but being saved, refreshed, renewed by the grace that can only be found in Christ. We come, we come, and he helps us with these things, and we fight for this true, this true type of faith, this true religion. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion, which is our our practice on the first Sunday of the month. This is a meal that Christians have been celebrating together for 2,000 years. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a member of this church, certainly a part of another Bible-believing church, you're welcome to come to this table and to receive communion with us. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, You shouldn't receive this meal, not because we're trying to exclude you or to make you feel uncomfortable, but because we don't want you to just go through some religious exercise in your mind and possibly miscommunicate to you that you're right with God merely because you were here and you heard a message and you're doing this thing that Christians do. What we're doing when we take this meal, it's not not just a religious ceremony. It's Christians coming to this table taking a little piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for our sins, that was sacrificed for us, and then taking a cup which represents Jesus' blood that was spilled for us, that when we have faith, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we're born again, is, is representative of the blood of Jesus that washes us whiter than snow. And so when we come to this table, we're, we're saying something, we're proclaiming something, we're saying that all of my hope is in what Jesus has done in his broken body and his spilled blood to make me right. And I'm reminding myself of that. And I'm looking at my life, I'm examining myself in light of that, and I'm realizing that my hope could never be in my own righteousness or in how good my week has been. But I come humbly, I come limping to this table, needing afresh the grace of the gospel. That's what it means to come to this table, to be a believer in Jesus. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, it just wouldn't be appropriate for you to take this meal. And it's fine for you to just stay in your seat. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're all going to stand. The band is going to come worship with us or lead us in some worship. And people will come as they're ready. They'll come to the table that's closest to them and take the bread and the cup. Hold on to those elements, brothers and sisters, and And Robert will lead us to receive them together as a faith family. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, it's more than appropriate for you just to stay where you are. We pray that maybe God would 
would take this gospel message and call you to faith. And if that's happening to you, I'd love to speak to you after service. But now, this table is for believers in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come, as we start this new year, we want to be people that actually do what we say. We realize that we all deal with hypocrisy. But, but Lord, take this text and decrease the gap. Make us more like Jesus. Transform us. Sanctify us more. Help us control our tongues. Help us care for others more, vulnerable in particular. Help us fight, put vigor, put steel in the spine of, of, of your people in this room so that we can fight to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And as we come around this table, we examine ourselves. We don't come proudly. We don't come out of tradition. We come humbly. We come limping. Some of us dragging ourselves to this table, needing a fresh the grace of the gospel. For my friends in this room who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd take these words, this text from James 1, something that was said today, something that was sung, something that was prayed, some word that communicates the truth of the power of the gospel that saves and that you would take a dead heart and you would make it alive and you would give that person faith and that they would look away from themselves and look to you and you alone and what Christ has done to bear your wrath for them on the cross and that you would give them faith where they, be, they can behold Jesus and trust in him and follow him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. Lord, do that, I pray, in somebody's heart this morning and be glorified as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.